Well, good evening. Thank you for being here. If you don't have an outline, if you'd like to grab one, feel free to get up and get one wherever you came in. Uh, those are available. Tonight we're studying or starting a brand new study in the book of 1 Peter, Hope in a World That is Not Our Home. Uh, before we get into the actual study of 1 Peter, uh, I want to tell you about a man that I knew for a little bit when I was in seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, as far as I know, I have only known one person personally who actually has been persecuted for their faith. Um, John Moldovan was a classmate of mine at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and uh, I came to Southwestern as a Baptist from East Tennessee. He came to Southwestern as a Baptist from Romania. Uh, he had a very interesting story, and I remember John as a very humble man, and I remember him as a man who was extremely, extremely eager to learn. He was a man who was thirsty to learn and to prepare uh, for the pastorate. Uh, John told our class his story, and uh, it was quite an intriguing account. Uh, I probably heard him share it more than once, but John grew up in communist Romania where he struggled to follow the Christian heritage that his grandfather and father kind of passed on. John's grandfather had been converted from Russian orthodoxy to the Christian faith while imprisoned in Russia in the First World War. He later, as a Christian, was sentenced to, be, to, sentenced to death by drowning because of his zeal to spread the gospel. Uh, he somehow escaped and was not executed. However, John's father continued the tradition that his grandfather had done. That his father was also a Baptist minister, uncompromising, effective, evangelistic Baptist minister in Romania. Uh, he too experienced regular persecution for his faith. And eventually, his faith led to his execution. He was assassinated one day as he was leaving church. That was John's father. John, growing up as a teenager, as you can imagine, didn't want a whole lot to do with Baptist or with Christianity. Uh, not at first. In fact, he said he used to get angry at God for, for, for he being born into a Christian family and especially a Baptist family because they seemed to be hated in, in the area where he was living. Eventually, John did come to faith in Christ and he had this great fear that what happened to his grandfather, what happened to his father would also happen to him. Uh, and he tells a story of how God dealt with him and broke through his fear and all of that. And eventually, John became not only a Christian, he too became a Baptist minister. Uh, he followed the steps of his father, the steps of his grandfather, because he began to experience that same kind of religious oppression. It started out as that. It started out as religious oppression. That was kind of the first step. The government leaders trying to harass him and trying to encourage him to denounce his faith. Uh, when that didn't work, then they ratcheted up the pressure and he was arrested. He was interrogated. He was threatened, much like the apostles in the book of Acts, how they were arrested and brought in and threatened. That's what the authorities did to John in, in uh, Romania. And when that didn't work, when he continued to share Christ and be a Baptist minister, eventually he was arrested. He was imprisoned, and he was tortured, simply because he was a follower of Christ. And he told our class about being beaten and tortured 
in prison. He spent several years in prison. Eventually, they tried to get him to renounce his faith and to renounce his Romanian citizenship. If he would not announce his, renounce his faith, they wanted him to at least renounce his citizenship. He refused to do either, and eventually they renounced his Romanian citizenship, and they made him leave the country simply because he was a follower of Jesus. John went from Romania to Rome. He spent 10 days there, and then he made his way to uh, New York City, where he came in as a refugee. And after staying in New York City a while, some people, he began to ask around, where can I go prepare for ministry? Somebody told him about Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Some, somebody else gave him a, this was in the 80s, uh, mid-80s. Somebody gave him a 1965 car. And he drove 40 miles an hour. That's all the car would do. He drove 40 miles an hour from New York City to Fort Worth, Texas to come prepare for ministry. John's desire was to one day go back to his country and to share the gospel with the Romanians. John Moldovan is... He knew what it was like to suffer because you're a Christian. He knew what it was like to... I have to pay a price because you believe in Jesus. The letter we call 1 Peter was written to people like John Moldovan. People who experienced persecution. They knew what persecution was, right, what was, was like. And so Peter writes this letter to Christians that are scattered around the Asian Minor area. Modern day Turkey is where they were located. And they were suffering for the faith. Now, now remember now... These were not people who were living, and you'll see this in a few minutes, they were not living in Israel. They were living outside of Israel. They were living in modern-day Turkey, and yet persecution had spread even up to, to them, and we'll talk about how that came about in just a few moments. But I just want you to realize that this letter, primarily 1 Peter written, you might say primarily about persecution and staying faithful to Christ and bringing God glory, those those. Ex- who experienced those kind of hardships, they experienced it because they had a genuine relationship and commitment to Jesus Christ. And this anti-Christian climate that we see in the first century is alive and well, unfortunately, in our world today. Places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan... That anti-Christian climate is very much raging in our world today. And Peter wrote to people like that who are being put through the fire of persecution because of their faithfulness to Christ. So, here's a good question. Does this letter have anything to say to us who have not gone through those kind of experiences? I mean, we don't live in Pakistan. We live in Powdersville. So, does the letter, 1 Peter, have anything to say to us about our faith. And if you've got your notes there, there's a place at the very heading where uh, I want to say yes, this letter called First Peter is still a timely letter for two reasons. First and foremost, it is a timely letter because it is the Word of God. And God's Word is always relevant. And God's Word is always applicable. Always. Every book, every letter is always applicable. Uh, it is inspired by God for our benefit. So, yes, any book that you read, it, you may not be able to identify personally with everything that, that we'll read in 1 Peter, but 1 Peter was written for your benefit too. 
First Peter was written for my benefit too. It is a word from God for us. Yes, it was for the people experiencing persecution in Peter's day, but it's also a word from God for us. But number two, there on your notes, though the background of the letter is persecution, the focus of the letter is the hope that we have in a world that is not our home. I'll say that again. Though the background of the letter is persecution, the focus of the letter is the hope we have in a world that is not our home. In other words, this letter is not just about persecution. It's scattered throughout the letter, yes. But it's not just about persecution. It's about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, regardless of the problems or the trials that we're going through. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. I want to show you just a few verses here as we kind of try to get a survey of the letter this evening before we start really looking at it in detail next week. 1 Peter chapter 1. Thinking of this idea that the focus of the letter is the hope that we have in a world that's not our home. Look how this letter opens in chapter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us New birth into a what? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Kept in heaven for you. From the very first words of the letter, Paul is talking about hope. And he's talking about our heavenly home. And then go on over, if you will, to verse 21. Same chapter, verse 21. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so your faith and hope are in God. This idea of a living hope, a living hope that God gives us, it's really one of the major themes of this letter. He's saying to you and me, you can be hopeful regardless of what you're going through. You can be hopeful. We've been talking with families and ministering to families this, this week that are going through some very, very difficult times. But I want to tell you something. In the midst of the problems and the pain of life, you can still be hopeful. Now, before we study the details of this fascinating letter, I really want us to just get acquainted with the man who wrote it and the people to whom it was sent. And really then the, the particular situation that prompted Peter to write this letter. So, I hope you have your Bibles. I was watching online. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you got a Bible handy. And I just want to look at the very first verse. As we look at the writer of this letter, the author of the letter. Of course, in, in biblical days, when you wrote a letter, you, the author put his name first. Now, in, in our day and time, the author puts, we put our name at the end of the letter. But in biblical days, when you wrote a letter, the author was written first so that when you're reading it, oh, this is from Paul, this is from Peter. I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Now, if we get a letter, we have to look through it, trying to get to the end of it to see who wrote it to us. But, but in biblical days, the author of the letter was listed first, and then the recipients. So that's what we see here. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you know... And he states it here very clearly in case you didn't know that Peter was one of the 12 apostles or disciples chosen by Jesus. And along with James and John, not only was he an apostle, but along with James and John, he was part of this inner group, this special relationship that he and James and John had with Jesus. And they really got some special 
training, if you will, in, the, in those quiet times with the Lord. And they had, of course, tremendous fellowship. Can, you ima- can we pause here for a minute? Can you imagine what it must have been like to be, not only just be an apostle of Jesus, but to be in one of the inner circle, one of the three of his closest followers? Man, what, what would that have been like to spend quiet time alone with Jesus? The author of this letter spent a lot of quiet time alone with Jesus. Keep that in mind when we talk about the price that he pays later. All right, so uh, after the birth of the New Testament church, after we, I'm, I'm fast-forwarding, of course, but after the birth of the New Testament church, after Pentecost, the birth of the New Testament church, two of the apostles rose basically to prominence or Two of the apostles became spokesmen for the rest of the group. I'm not saying that the other apostles didn't go around preaching and teaching, but there were two who really just kind of stood out. And when you read the book of Acts, it's very evident that there are two apostles who really kind of stepped forward in that time, and they were, of course, Paul and Peter. Now, Paul was assigned by God to minister especially to who? Paul's target audience was who? Gentiles. Peter's target audience was who? The Jews. Now what's very interesting, and we're going to dig into this for a few minutes, what's very interesting is that Peter and Paul had a common friend. Now Peter and Paul did know one another. In fact, it talks in Scripture that actually one time uh, Paul was going to kind of, I'll say it this way, Paul decided he needed to call Peter out on something. All right? So they had this ongoing relationship, Peter and Paul did. But they also had a common friend, a co-worker, a co-laborer, who worked not only with Paul, but he also at some times worked with Peter. It's interesting that they had this common friend who served with both of them in ministry at different times. I mean, can you imagine being a friend of Paul and a friend of Peter? Talk about being a name dropper. I mean, I'd be dropping some names, wouldn't you? Say, oh, yeah, when I was hanging out with Paul. And then the other day when I saw Peter, you know. Uh, so, so there's this one man who kind of was friends with both Paul and Peter, co-laborers with them, and the man's name is Silas. We see him listed in the Scripture in this very letter. Uh, Silas was a member of the early church and a leader in the early church. Before we get to the letter, let's just go to the book of Acts real quick. Uh, I want to show you Silas real quickly because it, the story really kind of unfolds in, in just a moment. You need to see the main characters here. Uh, Acts chapter 15. We're looking at this, this character, this individual who was friends with both Paul and Peter. His name was Silas. Some translations may translate it uh, Silvanus or Silvanus. Uh, he's a leader in the early church. We know that because we read in chapter 15 of Acts, beginning in verse 32. The people, uh, let's start in verse 30. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said to said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. These were leaders in the early church. Silas was one of those guys who was like a preacher and a leader uh, in the early church. Go over to verse, six, uh, verse uh, 36. 
Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because, watch this, he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now remember these names. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Remember these names. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left Commended by, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Uh, so there's this disagreement, this dispute over John Mark. John Mark left uh, on the first missionary journey. He went back home. We, we don't know why. Homesickness, we don't know. He left and went back home. And when Paul said, let's go back on our second missionary journey and check on the churches we started, Barnabas said, good, let me go get John Mark. And Barnabas said, uh-uh. He's not going with us. And, and so here's what happened. Watch these names again. Barnabas took who? Mark. And Paul took Silas. Now, what's, what gets very interesting is that Peter. Remember Peter? Peter also knew John Mark. In fact, Peter led John Mark to saving faith. So, let's go back to 1 Peter. This is going to get interesting. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. This is how he ends the letter. Sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Not talking about his physical son, he's talking about his son in the faith. Peter apparently led Mark or John Mark to saving faith. So here we have in verse 13, Mark is mentioned. Now re- talk to me real quickly. Mark went with who on the, that missionary journey? Barnabas. Silas went with Paul. Now we come to Peter and look at verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Silas was Peter's amanuensis or his scribe or his secretary. Peter dictated and Silas wrote down this letter we have for, that we call First Peter. The interesting thing is, Peter led John Mark to the Lord Peter is working with Silas before they had gone in different directions. But by the grace of God, we don't have time to get into it. Paul was reconciled with John Mark. Everybody hugged and made up. And I want you to see, I want you to see these words now. Look, look at these words, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying, watch this, that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. So does my son Mark. This is the grace of God. Silas is the one who actually wrote this letter. And John Mark was, is connected to it as well. I just love that story. Warren Wiersbe, put this on your notes.
We're going to move on. Warren Wiersbe said, this letter, I think there's a place there to fill in the blank. This letter grew out of a life lived to the glory of God. A number of events in Peter's life are woven into the fabric of this epistle. A number of events in Peter's life are woven into the fabric of this epistle. Now, trying to watch the time before I get too far into this, but tell me what you know about Peter. Uh, You know, we've just been here and there all over the scripture for a moment but tell me about what you know about Peter in the days of Jesus what do you what do you what stands out to you about Peter say it louder outspoken yeah absolutely what else huh hot-headed absolutely he denied Jesus Yeah, Jesus often stayed in his home at Capernaum. That's right, absolutely. Peter is an example. We, we had the time to kind of just do a whole study on him. He, he's an example of what God can do with a failure. You remember how many times he failed? I mean, he tried to walk on water and he nearly drowned. Now, he walked on water further than I've walked on water, but... But, but, you know, he, he, he messed up. And then Peter protested that Jesus would never die. He said, I, I'll protect you. If everybody else runs away, I'm going to be there for you. And, of course, that didn't happen either. Uh, he was the one who denied the Lord Jesus. And, and even when it was all over and they were supposed to go out and evangelize the world, Peter was so downcast, he said, I'm going to go back fishing. Anybody else want to go fishing? I'm, I'm just... He was kind of reverting back to his old life. And yet, this is the same man who became the preacher. Watch this, four things. He became the preacher at Pentecost. He became a prisoner for his faith. The man who denied his faith became a prisoner for his faith. He became a leader in the New Testament church. And he became the author of 1 and 2 Peter. He's a wonderful example of what God God can do with a failure. So, as we open his letter that he wrote, I want to deal with the first two verses and try to set the stage for the rest of the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We may come back to this verse next week and dig a little deeper, but let me start out with this word, strangers. What what word do you have in your translation? If you've got some other translation besides the NIV, what word is used there? Exiles. Yeah, that's an excellent word. Anybody else got a different one? Foreigners, that's another good word. So let's look at the text again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, that is those who have been saved, and then he uses the word strangers or exiles or foreigners in the world. The Greek word there is an interesting word because it really means people who temporarily reside on earth, but their permanent home is in heaven. That's what he means by that That word strangers in the world or exiles in the world or 
foreigners in the world. It's referring to people who temporarily reside on earth, but their home is in heaven. That's why on this title slide, hope in a world that is not our home. Listen, I am more convinced every day, if you know Christ as your Savior, I am more convinced every day, this world is not our home. You're going to live here at most, maybe a hundred years. At most, you're going to live here for that, that amount of time. But if you know Christ as Savior, you're going to go home to heaven where you're going to live forever. Eternity. So this is not our home. That's why Peter uses the word to God's elect who are strangers in the world. They are foreigners in the world. They are exiles in the world. This is just a place where we are residing temporarily. But one day, we're going to go to our home. Anybody excited about that? I was just thinking this afternoon as I was working on this. I was just thinking about, about my mom and my dad and my brother and their, their home. I'm still a stranger in this world. I'm still an exile in this world. I'm still a temporary resident in this world. But one day, I'm going to leave this world and I'm going to go to my heavenly home. What was the situation behind this? Because Peter says to God's elect who are strangers in the world, and then he uses this word scattered, disporid. It's the same idea in in the book of Acts where where the Christians were, in Acts chapter 8, they were scattered, they were forced out of Jerusalem. They were, they were forced to go take the gospel different places because of persecution. It's the same concept here. He said that they were scattered. This was not uh, necessarily a willingness to go to these places, but they were scattered to these places throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. And where in the world are those places anyway? Look at the map here we're going to put on the screen. I hope you can see this, but... Uh, you can see those areas in, written in red, Bithynia and Asia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus. All of that is the, the area today that we would call current day Turkey. Now I want you to look in the bottom right, it says Palestine. That's Israel, alright? So think about this, that's, that's Israel. He's writing to people not who live in Israel, not who live in Palestine. He's writing to people who live in what we call modern day Turkey. They're up in that area Uh, Asia Minor, it was called back then. They're in that area living there. And even there, they are now experiencing persecution. It's very interesting how all this comes about. So, get your note note sheet. Let me give you some information to write down. And you just write whatever seems appropriate to you as you're taking notes. Um, I was going to draw this big timeline for you, but then when I looked at the size of this, I realized I can't draw a very big timeline. And so I'm just going to write down some some dates and try to show you the significance of these dates and how these dates relate to this letter. Uh, The first date um, that that I want to write down is... ...30 A.D. or A.D. 30. In A.D. 30, that's when Pentecost occurred. This is when the church was born. All right, A.D. 30, the the, the church. Church was born. Now, not that long later, just 24 years later, in 54 A.D., there was a man who came to power in, in the Roman Empire, the new 
Roman emperor was a man named who? Nero. This is a significant time frame. Nero. Let me pause here for a moment and try to explain to you the progression of persecution that occurred in the New Testament church. Prior to A.D. 30, before the birth of the church, in the days of Jesus, this is where I need to extend my timeline this way, prior to A.D. 30, in the days of Jesus, the persecution of Christians in that time was really minimal, if at all. Uh, Basically, Rome allowed Jews to live at peace in Rome so long as they didn't make problems for the Romans. Jews could live. Now, the Romans were over them, sure. The Romans were in charge, absolutely. But there, there was this coexistence with Rome. Christians were seen as a, as a branch off of or a sect of uh, Judaism. So initially, Christians weren't viewed as a separate group. They were viewed as just because, remember now, most of the Christians were Jews, right? I mean, Jesus was a Jew. And so, and, and Christianity was birthed in, in Jerusalem, the, the headquarters of Judaism. So initially, prior to the birth of the church, initially, there really was very little persecution unless you did something to upset Rome. And that was true for Jew and Christians. Then in AD 30, you have the birth of the church, and the persecution that began initially against the church then was not from Rome, but it was from the Jews, it was the Jewish religious leaders that were, that were arresting uh, you know, the apostles and bringing them in and threatening them and, and beating them and jailing them. It was not the Romans doing that. That was the religious leaders, the Jews that were doing that. So initially, initially the persecution was from Jews in this area. Then, Christians, as Christianity grew, it became more and more apparent that that there is a difference between a Jew and a Christian. It became more apparent, especially to the Romans, that there is indeed a difference between the Jew and the Christian. And the Romans took note that the Jews were persecuting Christians. Even though they were Jewish in background, they were persecuting Christians. And so Rome began to take note of this, and here's where it began to turn when the Christians were uh, asked to pledge allegiance to the emperor. Their motto was, Caesar is Lord. A Christian could not make that statement. A Christian would not make that statement. A Christian would say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so all of a sudden, Rome begins to take note of these Christians who become a threat to the Roman government. Because now they're, they're talking about a different Caesar. Now they're talking about a different Lord his name is Jesus. And so, so they really began to come down hard uh, on the Christians. Especially in, after AD 54. Nero was a man who was crazy. And he was, filled, he was evil. And he was filled with hatred, especially for Christians. And so the persecution ramped up after AD 54. The persecution against Christians began to ramp up. Now... When we come to AD 63, well, that is AD 63. Here's what happens. Around AD 63, Peter writes this letter we call 1 Peter. That's a significant time. Around AD 63, 
Peter writes this letter. It, some say A.D. 64, uh, but we're going to say 63, and I'll show you why in a moment. A.D. 63, Peter writes 1 Peter. And by this time, A.D. 63, by this time, as we read 1 Peter, we recognize that the persecution of Christians has increased greatly. In just, what, 30, 33 years, from the birth of the church to the time of 1 Peter, in just 33 years, the persecution of the church has greatly increased. And it was accelerated when Nero came into power. Are you tracking with me? All right, so... Let me show you what happens. Maybe I can mark it down here. The thing that really set things off was in 64 A.D. In 64 A.D., Rome burns. I mean, most of Rome burned. And it was so evident that somebody had to have done this because it wasn't like one building, you know, kind of lightning hit it and, and one building burned. The city of Rome burned. And when the city of Rome burned, of course, all the pagan idols were burned and all the pagan, quote, holy sites were destroyed and the people of Rome were in uproar and they wanted to know who would do such a thing. And historians believe that the one who actually burned Rome was Nero. So in order to cover his tracks in order to protect himself and his kingdom, in order to protect what he, he had and all of that, he blamed Christians. He said, no, it wasn't me, it was those Christians. Those people who say Jesus is Caesar, those are the ones who set Rome on fire. They set Rome on fire because they say Jesus is Caesar. And so he blamed the Christians. July the 19th, AD 64... I should have given you that data earlier. July the 19th, A.D. 64, is when Rome burned. By October, uh, uh, not 1964, A.D. 64. July 19, A.D. 64, is when Rome burned. By October, A.D. 64, the persecution of Christians was an all-out war against, against believers. Nero led an empire-wide attack on Christians. Empire-wide. And so, around, look at these dates here. I don't have the space to write, but around 66 AD, about two years after the burning of Rome, after the Christians were uh, persecuted, and I'll tell you what, what he did to them in just a moment, about two years later, Peter wrote a second letter. That's when he wrote his second letter. And then, about a year later, 67, AD 67, about a year after writing the letter we call 2 Peter, about a year later, around AD 67, uh, Peter was executed. Executed by Nero. Um, he was crucified. Tradition says that he actually requested be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die like his Savior. But he was crucified by Nero, by the Roman soldiers. Around these dates, 
These dates are not exact. Well, this one is. That's pretty exact. But 66, 67, those are approximate dates. Sometime between 64 to 67, he wrote the letter, and we know that he was executed. I think AD 67 is a pretty good date to kind of hang your hat on, that that's the year that he was executed. By the way, around that same time frame, we don't know the exact date, but around that same time frame, Paul was also executed. Paul was beheaded. Again, by Nero and the, and the Romans. So around this same time, Peter and Paul were killed. They were martyred for their faith. Now, with that in mind, I'm trying to watch the clock here. Let me just wrap this up in just a few minutes. With that in mind, um, let me tell you real quickly some of the things that, that Nero, once Rome burned, let me give you a couple of examples of what Nero did to persecute the Christians between, between here and when Peter wrote the second letter. After Rome burned and Nero began to, to uh, point the finger to Christians, uh, he actually held garden parties at his palace and he would cover the Christians in tar and set them on fire and use them as human lanterns. That's how sick he was. Um, he would also bring Christians in and they would sew them into animal skins. Take an animal skin and put it around and sew it on them. And then throw them into the arena and let the lions loose. And they would be attacked and of course mauled and, and killed that way as well. So, when we're reading 1 Peter, I want to give you the big picture. When we're reading 1 Peter, keep in mind where this is occurring. The church was born about 32, 33 years before 1 Peter. From that time on, persecution against Christians slowly began to rise. In AD 54, when Nero came on the scene, persecution began to increase. Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter, and a lot of the the letter is in regard to the persecution Nero is bringing against the church. But that takes a bigger turn in AD 64 when Rome burns and he begins to absolutely annihilate Christians and torture them. Peter writes the second letter and then he's executed by Nero. So, with that in mind, let me... Um, just give you an outline of the letter. I'm not going to read the letter to you. I'm going to give you an outline and we'll pick up next week and uh, take off looking at what Peter wrote to us. So an outline of the letter, and I've, got, I've taken this outline from Warren Wiersbe. This is not original with me. Uh, but here's three points. If you can kind of outline the book in three different sections. The first section is God's grace in salvation. God's grace in salvation. Chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 10. And in the, in the, underneath that, there's three sub-points. Underneath that, that main point, there's three sub-points. Living in hope, living in holiness, and living in harmony. Those are the three things he talks about. If you want the verses, I'll give them to you afterwards. I don't, I don't want to bore you with too much details, but if you want to come up, I'll give you the verses later. So God's grace in salvation is chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. And then, 
he talks about God's grace in submission. Chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 12. This is perhaps the hardest part of the book, talking about submission, because he talks about submission in four different areas. First of all, he talks about submission to, to authorities. Those who are in government over you. Imagine how that would have sounded in this setting. Submission to the authorities over you. He's writing this letter in a time when the authorities over you are persecuting you. And he writes about submission to the authorities. Then he writes about, secondly, again, these are four subpoints under number two. Submission to authorities is the first subpoint. The next one is submission to masters, slaves and masters. And then the third subpoint, he writes about submission in the home. And then the fourth subpoint, he writes about submission in the church. And then the, the, the third section of the letter, first section is God's grace and salvation, second is God's grace and submission, and the third section, the final section of the letter is God's grace and suffering. God's grace and suffering. And he says five things in that section. I'm going to give you those five things, five subpoints, if you will. First, make Christ Lord of your life. Oh, by the way, God's grace and suffering is chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. God's grace and suffering, chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. And then the five subpoints. Number one, make Christ Lord of your life. Number two, have Christ's attitude. Have the attitude of Christ and what you're dealing with. Number three, glorify Christ's name. Number four, look for Christ's return. And number five, depend on Christ's grace. Then the farewell is chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. That's the farewell, the ending. All right. So that's the letter of 1 Peter. It's just a survey. Uh, there's a lot we could talk about, of course, but we'll start in chapter 1 next week and start working through this letter verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, and as you read it, I hope that you'll keep this in perspective. Hope that you and those churches that you see on the map there, scattered around, those churches experiencing this persecution, uh, even in Asia Minor. Okay? Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, and even for those, uh, Lord, those times when life is hard and we think we can't take it anymore and we can't make it, thank you for giving us words of encouragement, words of hope, like First Peter. I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd help us to better understand this letter and how it applies to our lives, how it applies to our church, how it applies to your kingdom. We pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and help us to see the wonderful things in your word. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.